Hi, I'm Glyn Fussell, and this is We Can Be Heroes. It's been two weeks since London Trans Pride, and I feel as though there's a conversation that has never felt more urgent. I wanted to catch up with founder of Not A Phase, the amazing charity that uplifts trans lives, Danielle St. James. This is what happened. The last time I saw you was two weeks ago now at Trans Pride. Oh yeah, rainy, hot, mucky Trans Pride. Yes, let's just say that God was not on our side that day. It was the worst day for weather. It was. But it didn't stop, I think, the highest attendance coming. So far? 35,000 people. The numbers vary. I think I they put out 25. Some news places says 30. It, it was a lot of people. Last year it was estimated 20. So whatever the rise is, whether it's 5, 10 or 15 more, um, is obviously every year it gets bigger and bigger. Yeah. But, but bigger and bigger but very different than Pride that happened at the beginning of the month, mm. um, which had a million, over a million people. I think it was the, the highest attended Pride on record in the UK. And <clears throat> the dates have moved. So Trans Pride is now a lot closer to, um, is that right? Am I correct? I think I am. Uh, I, no, I think it's London Pride that's moved around, not London Trans there you Pride. Go. <laughs> London Pride has moved around. I didn't it used to be right that the first weekend of September. Yeah, but the but the shipped. closer proximity I think makes you look at these two very different events, right? Here mm. we are with with London Pride which is televised, which is reported on, which is um sponsored heavily, which is attended, I would say, not only by our community, by allies, by spectators, by mm. haters. Um but what what struck me was Trans Pride feels very much DIY, grassroots, and feels like a protest. Feels very much like a throwback to what I would imagine the early, earliest Pride marches and Stonewall um, marches were. And, and it just made me look at it in a way that the world right now, trans people, you know, are being attacked so heavily around every turn and there was a lack of humans. There was a lack of support. Mm. Is that something that you noticed? I've not spoken to you about this. And this is really why there's so many things happening right now. But that really spoke volumes to me. You know, here we are, over a million people, 35,000 people. Not any media reports. Well, n- none that are positive. None that are positive. Yeah. What is going wrong? There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, there were so many points in that that could easily turn into discussions within themselves. Um, when um, around the year that the charity launched, there was a collective of protests as well as trans pride, and they were all similar in the way that they felt. <clears throat> and I remember one of them, I did a speech at, one of the rallies I did a speech at, and I came home and I cried and cried and cried. And um, it was, I think it's the only time in my life I got on Instagram and cried. <laughs> Cringe. Um, but I was crying because I I was looking through Instagram when I got home and all of my, well, not all, but a lot of my gay male friends were posting like Mykonos throwbacks because we were still you know I think it was yeah it was 2020 you know they were like oh this time last year it was a picture of them by the pool drinking an Aperol spritz and all of that and I was so angry that it made me cry and I remember saying like where are you why are you not showing up for us because I felt like if what we were if if gay men were up against what we were up against currently i would show up i would show up and i'd speak at that too you know like i uh, my um my life has been dictated through the companionship and love of gay men especially and i look around at so many of them in our community that are doing absolutely nothing and that's and don't show up for us and so that anger's kind of subsided now. I do see more of it. I do think that we're seeing, you know, look at the numbers. They are going it's up. Not it's, no, it's not enough. No, it's not enough. It's not. But I mean, if I live in that mindset of um, anger at the ones that are not doing, then I would lose my mind. I have to, I, I, 
I have to in my role with in my role as my job and my role in the community I think I have to operate in a place from a place of optimism and a place of appreciation for what we have right now and what we can do with it otherwise I'm just going to spend my whole time shouting at people yeah know? I don't so this is my <laughs> feeling is that we I feel very angry with it we should oh, that's Tani's watch I feel very angry right now um and I should add as well, we've, you're the first person we've ever had on the podcast twice. And that's because it's urgent right now with what's going on. I think with trans people, not only from the outside world, but within our community, there's a moment right now where there needs to be a huge amount of support. And, and I feel that I'm fully aware of my privilege as a gay man, as a white gay man. Yeah. And I think that if we look at what trans people did for us, for gay men, right, mm. and for our rights at the very beginning yeah. of prides and of of uh, protests, where are the gay men now? Making us sweetheart, I told you, Aperol Spritz, Jackie O's, and I just, <clears throat> I really that on Trans Pride, I walked away feeling this really f- peculiar. Um, sort of polarised uh, set of emotions where I thought, this is wonderful. Yeah. You know, 35,000 people, however many people. Yeah. And there was a real togetherness. And also for an independent um, march, it felt really, um, it felt very um, loaded without being, um, it just it felt like very focused in what it was trying to do, and it felt together. I think I think there might be a case of that people um, don't understand in the way that you do. People don't understand how helpful it is just for them to show up because having those numbers there really puts that point across of like we will not stand for this we are in this together we stand strong in unity you know because as you say with um with london pride not london trans pride the main one pride in london um so much of the messaging is lost by things that are all quite fab and quite glittery and quite quite fun and uh, and monetized and it's, and it's monetized. great which i also I, it, it, we can come back to that because i definitely believe that there's a big that there's a place for corporate partnerships and i and i as somebody that manages those for the charity i believe in the power of corporate money if it's done right um loads of examples that it's not but i believe that that, that it's a positive thing and it can be used for good right um but yeah, I think I, 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 I wish that people understood the power that they hold in just showing up. And I think a lot of the work that um, we are doing right now is hopefully changing the conversation from like, oh, three tips on how you can be a better ally this Pride Month and this sort of like wishy-washy acceptance of, um, of passiveness allyship needs to be reframed in people's minds and it needs to become advocacy we need people to be standing up and be advocates for us not just well you know if as long as it's not hurting me or getting in the way of my life you know that's that's so passive and right now we need people to be advocates advocates i could not agree more um how do people do that because i think sometimes when your life is, when you become complacent, when you're in a fine place where everything's safe, mm. where, you know, I think the, honestly, the the life of gay men in this country, I'm not generalizing here. I am generalizing, I should say, but we become very palatable. You know, there's there's gay men everywhere. Mm. You're, you, even your mum has a gay hairdresser. There's gays on Carnation Street. We do not maybe have trans friends as allies or so how can someone that maybe even doesn't live in a um a city like london or manchester how do they support trans people 
The thing is, is that there's never been more resources for learning about what's actually going on because there's a lot of misconception about the things that are happening. I think to, to the outsider looking in, gay or, gay or not, because I've spoken to gay people within the last month that um, were completely oblivious to the things that are happening. Um, I think the mis- there's a misconception that we're these like absolute nut jobs that are coming in with a sledgehammer to knock the toilets into one one unified <laughs> dystopia um and it's not we're here to talk about when we're saying like trans rights are human rights we're talking about like actual rights and equality um and we we need people to do the learnings on what we are actually trying to fight for and then collectively carry that message forward because like you say there's not that many of us I mean there was a a study done recently where they asked a thousand people across the country um what percentage of the country is trans and it averaged out people thought that that 23 percent of the UK is trans because of the way that media dictates it 23 percent that'd be one in five people is trans right we make up 0.3 to 0.5% of the population. It's, it, it, it's, there's so many misconceptions about us. And what are those and misconceptions? They're the same misconceptions that were used against gay people mm. in the late 80s, early 90s, that we're trying to radicalize kids, that we are, you know, Dangerous. we're predators, we're lurking in the shadows, that we're male-bodied rapists or sex criminals, or, you know, that there's a, this this mass of us in women's prisons or sports or... You, you, all of this, this language, this fear tactic language has been used before we're in a cycle this has already been done and we know how it goes Mm. and so what we need is people to recognize that study up listen to the listen to the listen to what we're trying to say and then advocate for it in whatever way i think the misconception is people think that they're powerless because you know they just have some job in an office in sheffield or something but even just ha- having conversations in places like that, that's what creates social change. You know, it co- social change is going to come through the normalization of people like us. Um, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, it, it, it all starts with people carrying the message forward and saying, hey, I heard this this silly Danny on a podcast the other day and she was talking about this. Um, let's talk about it, you know. Do you ever get tired of the message? Because I think, you know, when I speak to a lot of my, I guess it's different with you. You, you My know, job. Yeah. It's your job. You are the head. You are a figurehead in the community and you are the head of Not A Phase, an amazing charity that empowers the life of trans adults, right, all around the UK. But more than that, everything you do is with this lens. But I've spoken to a lot of trans people and just by being, they've almost had to become an activist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's really tough, and you and 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 everyone becomes everyone becomes an information source source for all of the questions. Um, I'm not tired of it. I love my job. I love I I love getting to have the conversations that I do, and they come in all shapes and sizes. And 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 the most surprising conversations will come out of um, the most unexpected places. I love that about my job. Um, but it doesn't surprise me at all to hear that people are exhausted of the conversations and specifically around the things that they're, that are just completely baseless, you know, like the sport thing and the kids and it's, it's really hard. There's, it's really easy to peddle a a dangerous narrative Mm -hmm. and attack those things that are so fundamental to mainstream heterosexual culture, sports, families, Mm. And like you said, it happened uh, in the late 80s with gay men and, and the, you know, AIDS and HIV being weaponized. And it's happening right now with trans people. Yeah. Do you know what's interesting? I think our generation is too easy to forget what gay people were subjected to decades yeah. ago. Yeah. Because especially, for, I, I realize we've said the word gay men so often, I don't want it to seem like I'm anti-gay man. I'm not. Um, but I think it's so easy to enjoy the freedoms and privileges that you now have as a result of these absolute atrocities that took place and forget about them and just say, well, we've got it now. There we go. 
Listen, they're coming for us first. They'll be coming for you next. It doesn't just start and end with trans people. Look at what's just happened in Italy. Italy, they've just changed the laws that only biological parents can be listed on birth certificates, stripping parents of their rights with their kids. That's not worlds apart from where we are right now. But the system will always come for the micro minority yeah so like you said not point what was the fat stati- a statistic not point three to not point five okay so they think to themselves we are going to go for trans people because there's not enough of them so we can peddle narrative and we are going to we're going to find that very very easy mm. i almost feel like it's it's not as easy now with gay men to do that it's just you know the media i touched on it right at the right at the top of this where i said that i think you look at you look at um the main pride and you look at the fact that every single tv channel now does pride month they do takeovers that radio station mainstream like everywhere you go windows and shops mm. and i feel like a lot of that starts with media and there was zero other than i think there was one negative story that was trying to be peddled on on trans pride Mm, yeah uh, yeah i know which story it was as well i don't know glenn i mean should that dampen the spirit of of what's behind it no but is it easy to be disheartened when you see that they only want to talk about when things have gone wrong or they want to use one case you know, up in Scotland, whatever it is, to peddle their own narratives. It's hard. It's hard. It's really difficult. It's difficult. This is, do you know what? This comes back to some things that we've struggled with, with running a charity whose message is optimism. We get the most clicks, the most engagement, and the most people talking about the charity when something horrendous has happened, when a person has died, when um, something was, something's gone really wrong people then engage with what we're doing. When we're highlighting people overcoming adversity, highlighting people thriving or promoting projects that help people to feel better, nobody cares. Nobody listens. It's trauma porn, you know? Um, So yeah, I I think it all plays into this... um, this narrative that the media seems to love at the moment that we're, we're, we're so, everything about us is negative and it's not, there's, there's so much joy. And like, regardless of the rain and, and all of that on, on Saturday, um, there was joy there because we were all together. It really was. Another thing that brings so many people joy is not a phase. I guess we should contextualize this. Um, I am a trustee of not phase yeah. and a very proud trustee. And We've been friends, very close friends for... A long time. A long time. A long, long time. Um, And in that time, I've seen you evolve and transform and become the person you are today. And I look at you and I'm just completely blown away in not only the role that you've stepped into, but how you've, you've really changed your life and in turn changed the life of so many people and all with this unbelievably positive message so talk to me about the message of not phase because you know i'm always trying to spread the good word um and we need to continue spread spreading a word of an organization that does so much good thank you yeah i think the um the message of the charity has become has become more important to me over the last nine months than it did in the nearly three years that that were before it. And um, the reason for that was, um, we, you, as you know, we did our first national visibility campaign yes. at the start of this of this year. And something really big changed when the idea of the campaign first came around. I came home. It was a really tough week. It was end of September last year. I came home to Alex, also a trustee, also my fiance. And um, we were just going through it with some really awful stuff in the headlines. And it was having an impact um, 
and the emotions behind that it's very similar to what led to us launching the charity in the first place of how bad it was but yeah it, it was a really tough time and Alex um said when I got in he said um we need to do something big we need to do something really really visible and big with this charity now and that was where we started plotting it out and um in the in the sort of like I'd say like four to six weeks that followed that, we went through all of these ideas where we were going to talk about the hate crime statistics rising by 332%. We were going to talk about, you know, um, extreme poverty, displacement, homelessness. Or uh, We were going to talk about how bad it is We and we were going to go through all of it and that was going to be the basis of the campaign. Mm. And then there was a really big change when we asked ourselves what our responsibility was right now we you're right we are we're a charity of optimism and we're a charity that um is there to uplift people listen we're not going out we're not we, we haven't got food banks we're not um creating social housing for abuse victims that's beyond what we're able to achieve but what we are able to do is give people some really lovely places to go and hope yeah and we are also we're able to lead by example and and that's really really important and that was why we changed our we changed our messaging last year we went from support trans lives it was our tagline we changed it to uplift and we're you know we changed it to uplift trans lives and that was a big fundamental change for us as an organization in recognizing what we had to do. And that was where the campaign came around. And we featured eight lovely people from all over the country that all came from completely different socioeconomic backgrounds. Some people had moved here for a safer way of life. Some people were, you know, they were from up north, down south. I'd like to talk about that, actually, because we see a poster, we see the campaign, and the campaign was amazing. It was so well received. It was all over the UK. Yeah. And I was so honoured that I could be there on that day and talk to... It was a great day. It was one of the most magical days. Yeah. Emotional and powerful. But I would love to hear about, you know, eight. eight there was eight people in the campaign. Mm. They couldn't have been more different. Um, these are eight different trans people with completely different lives, all fighting for the same thing, really. But... Talk a bit about some of those characters, because I think that that can be sometimes the problem is that we see trans people, it's just one thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was why we did it. I think it was putting not a face to a community, but putting a load of faces to the community. And the key part of it was that they were all big, smiling, happy, laughing. Successful. Successful. And successful in every way you can think of. Um, some were f- some were really successful in their jobs. You know, we've got like one of the lead lawyers for British Airways. We had a, a commercial director of Barclay Card, and then we had su- success in that. You know, we had um, a dog walker slash farmer who's getting married and never thought that he would be able to get married. Um, and we or we have you know Miller who um, has started his own rock climbing club for trans people Miller. up north love me i mean all of them there was sasha sasha miller uh, victoria who yeah. moved here from the philippines for a uh, for a safe way of life after living in fear and is now um a, an air stewardess for british airways it sounds like we went on the the headhunt from british airways we didn't we did it was a coincidence but she and she's now like and oh and by the way before that she was a blood scientist for the nhs like these people represent such a wide sp- and and also the 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 interesting thing is their their experience of being trans was all so different to each other. They were, you know, they all identified differently. They'd all had different medical or non-medical or social transitions. They were just such, they they are such different people. Um, and they were all just really bloody happy yeah. to be together as well. They were just happy to be brought together. Don't you think the for the best thing about being a human is to see somebody else that is in need of help 
to be an empath, to be someone that can um, can see a situation and go, you know what, that person is struggling or that person is under attack. Mm. And I think you are one of two people. You either want to do good or you want to do bad. And I think it strikes me right now that not enough people are being empathetic to the trans community because they're not switched on. They're not understanding. Yeah. It's, it's something, you know, me and you will have a million conversations about this all the time um, in the work through Not A Phase. But I th- I just, I, I need people to try harder. Yeah. <laughs> and I know that you're sat over there being really positive and really gracious because you kind of have to. But there is this thing in me at the moment, this this pit of fire that, leaves me really frustrated with what I see all my trans brothers and sisters going through. Yeah. Um, and I fear that we're going backwards. I fear that there's a moment yeah. of change, an opportunity that could change the lives of trans people worldwide. Because we are the UK, right, where there are a few places in the world, very few places where trans rights are changing, are progressing. I feel that we create a window of hope to the rest of the world. But I worry that if that then starts to go backwards, that people that are seeking refuge like Victoria coming from the Philippines, they're not going to, they're not going to have anywhere to go. Well, we just dropped from the fourth safest place to be LGBTQ in Europe to the 17th this year. We dropped from the fourth to the 17th. Which proves how quickly rights never was in the first place can never go back and unless we galvanize as human beings unless we show compassion support unless we look at the rights that we think we have yeah but weren't there yeah and and kind of cast that out to help others we're fucked we are well and truly fucked yeah it's really bad yeah and you're right when you say the, the power that we have in this country, similar to America. I always, when, when I'm doing talks, I always talk about the power um, of, of, of America and the UK in terms of um, what they do for marginalized groups. And, the, and we have a relationship with them whereby one will get a cold and the other one sneezes. Yeah. We mirror each other yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah. And things that, it's not long after one country does it that it comes to the other one. That's already happening, you know, and, and, and bad, the, the, the darkness is merging from both. You know, we, we just saw guidance come out from civ- for civil servants that they're, that they're only allowed to use bathrooms based on their biological sex now. And so this is happening. It's happening around us every day that people are slowly being stripped, not only of their rights, but of their dignity. You know, this is, it's a, it's a, an, a dehumanizing and incredibly isolating experience. And that is the driving force with the charity is, is how isolating it is because, you know, we, you, you and I, we, you know, we live in London or London adjacent and, um, because of that, there's like a, a, a an availability of a lot of different resources, but outside of this, people are alone, people yeah, are alone yeah. and they're scared and they they get all of their information from the media. And for the most part, mainstream media will only talk about us in terms of it being an absolute horror show. Um, it's scary. It's really, really scary. It's why we put a lot of effort at the moment into expanding way outside of cities if we can. Okay, look, we've, we've talked about the fears. We know what the fears are for trans people because they're right in front of us and they're yeah. every, around every corner that we turn. But what are your hopes... What are your hopes for change in the immediate future? Through the work that you do, I think, with Not A Phase. Mm. My hopes for change. It's, this, this is a tricky one. I, I, I really struggle to be optimistic sometimes. I, re, I think we're, it's really hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel at the moment. What are my hopes? My hopes are that we move past divisive, horrible conversations in which um that i don't think that they those 
so-called debates should be silenced. I think that there is a place for conversation when it comes to anything relating to how um, how the treatment of a minority group can affect wider people. You know, like when we're talking about um, the impact of women's rights and the misconception that talking about trans rights and women's rights as two separate things, when in fact a lot of it is so intersectional. Um, but I think that those conversations by decision makers should be pulling reference from conversations by the, in the masses. But I definitely think that we should be looking towards p- the experts of these things. And it shouldn't be fear-driven. It should be logic-driven. Right. I think that's my hope, is that we move to a position where the conversation turns to logic and numbers rather than fear. Um, and I hope... And that, fact. Yeah. And I hope that in moving past those conversations, that we can just bring the humanity back into the conversation about the community and then in terms of other things as well like I think um my dream for us as a community is that you know you are watching the television and you see a trans woman scanning somebody shopping on a Tesco advert and it's not a rainbow advert it just happens to be that a trans person is represented that level of normality in culture that we're around we're not we're and, and a lot of the time we're not here to talk about our identity I think that's my hope is that we we just move to a place of normalizing being humane in the way we talk about things and being logical well let's talk about you then oh okay my most inhumane friend (laughs) (laughs) no let's talk about the choices that you've made because here you are spokesperson icon (laughs) award winner have you won an award yet I think I've won a couple of awards. Oh, I think, yeah. I think I've won. Was it Rear of the Year and Spectacle Wearer? Oh, of the I, year? I was recognised as one of the um, 101 most influential this well, year. There you go. That was nice. But what that does, and it's very, again, you drop know, that in. It's very, my job. It's very um, convenient to dehumanise trans people, but I want to humanise your story. I want to know, I know your story, but I'd like mm. people to know about where you've come from, you know. Sure. Barry Island and and how you got to this place because I've known you for a big chunk of it and it's quite the the, the winding road. (laughs) That's a polite way of putting it. You've been a fucking mess. Yeah, I wasn't. So so we start in Barry Island. Okay, yeah. Um, Which people think that South Wales in the 90s must have been absolutely horrible to be a trans person or at that time a, a visibly gay person. Uh, but it, it wasn't for me. There wasn't a story of, uh, of, of merciless bullying or anything like that. Weirdly, I look back and I'm like, this is kind of weird. I went to a Catholic, I had a Catholic school education, but we had um, gender-free uniform and toilets we had everything was neutral we had a school that was completely (laughs) neutral and who put me in the girls PE class in year nine because they thought I did better in it and I look back and I'm like that is so progressive it's also just so easy oh so easy just to do that it wasn't a thing to do that it it wasn't a thing at all they just recognized where I learned better and just did it wow but uh, wow nuns did that as well wild um so yeah um you know grew up in South Wales followed by a couple of um, forgettable years in Ibiza um, (laughs) before I got to London when I was 20. Um, London, I I ran nightclubs, how we met. Yeah, we met on the nightclub scene. I guess we should say that. We met on the nightclub scene. You were the kind of queen of Soho and I was... You were East, I was Central. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I, I, I started in clubs in Ibiza and... That transferred. I actually, the first club, nightclub I ran was um, Proud Camden, Stables Market. Yeah. Ran Cam, ran Proud for a year. And then I ended up running um, Shadow Lounge in Soho. Owned by Lisa Vanderpump. It wasn't. It wasn't. Oh, was it? That's like, no, so mis- is it an urban myth? I'm gutted. There's so many misconceptions right, about on, it. But I think, I think she's perpetuated it. Yeah, However, sure. her sister-in-law was my DJ booker, oh. Simone Vanderpump. Wow. Who smoked like she ate cigarettes yeah. for breakfast. <laughs> she, she sounded, sorry, she sounded like she ate yeah, cigarettes. Yeah. She was like, hello. Amazing. Uh, yeah, so Ran Shadow Lounge. That was where my network came from. Those two and a bit years in Soho changed my life completely um 
And then I ran a um, a cowboy themed members club uh, just off the King's Road in Chelsea. Oh, we've all been there. Called Beaver Lodge. <laughs> I thought I knew everything about you. I did not know that. For a year of my life. Oh, I w- wow. For a year of my life, I wore cowboy boots every day um, around all of the posh Chelsea lot. It was very weird. Um, yeah. And so anyway, th- those uh, formative years of my life, kind of like 20 through to 24, I was in clubs, running clubs. I, I look back and I'm like, how was I general manager of some of London's really big clubs when I was 20? Yeah, that's well, crazy. I meet 20 year olds now and I wouldn't let them have a key to their own house, let alone the key yeah. to the city in that yeah. way, you know. Um, so I... Uh, um, okay. I've, I sat too far forward, didn't no, I? Okay. All right, so I... <clears throat> So I, um, you know, I went from from nightlife and then ended up back and forth between New York and other places around the world in the years that followed. Uh, I, I realise a lot of this is talking about my work life. I should say... What that, was going on in your personal life? Yeah, I should, I, I should say that within um, within the, 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 the club years and now, I, fall into, I, I fell into full active addiction. Um... Addiction is something that I that I think that there's. Um, we all speak about it really differently. Anyone who's been through recovery speaks about it differently. I believe that an addict is an addict, regardless of it being gambling, sex, cocaine, marijuana, alcohol, whatever it is. I think an addict is a mindset, and it's a and it, it's a it's an imbalance in your brain. And however it manifests, it, it manifests in the same way. And for me addiction manifested itself in drink drug drink always led to drugs so those two were the same thing for me drink party drugs um power ego and um men I think I was um, a cherry on top yeah I think my um my addict brain manifested itself in anything that felt good so I could um, get the most, absolute Dopamine. most Dopamine. of it. Yeah, more, more, more. It was, it, it was whatever I could have the absolute excess of, um, which led me to some really, really dark times. There was some real... What moment oh. did your life switch? What was that realisation that it had gone too far? Because, you know, listen, we both come from a similar background. I... I don't know anyone that's built a career in clubland that hasn't yeah. had to either take themselves away, figure things out if they want to continue to exist within, not necessarily in clubland, but within the same orbit, mm. or that is just vanished off the face of the earth because they cannot cope. So what was that moment for you? I had the worst 18 months to two years of my life, I had a horrible time that I fell really in, I fell into a very dark place. And the moment that it turned around, there was multiple factors in it. And it all happened around the same time. I had met my, my partner, Alex, I had met him f- four years previously. I met Alex, I think eight or nine years ago. It was, I met Alex around Beaver Lodge. I met He's him on the door. Right? I met him in Chelsea. He was on the door at a club I up the road. That. So I met him there. But I reconnected with Alex in 2019. We hadn't spoken for years. I reconnected with him. We started. Sl- we slowly started dating. My my Alex relationship was a really slow starter. We started dating, and I knew I was going to fuck that up. I knew it. I, as soon as he walked into my life, I knew. Oh, I'm going to break this. And but I really didn't want to. I really mm. really wanted more for myself than I was giving myself. That happened. Um the way that my body was reacting to alcohol and drugs changed. And That's I interesting. Yeah, and I I I I liken it to um when people develop allergies to things later in their life and they can, you know, they can eat dairy for the first 20 years of their life and then they start eating, they, they eat dairy and they shit yeah, themselves. So you're no longer resilient. I feel like something in me changed. Yeah. And, and then it would be, I would have a glass of wine and I would, would have no idea what happened the rest of the night. I was blacking out from 
just a little bit, but I knew it wasn't stopping there. I mean, it, and I would go out, I would end up out, out for days and I'd come to in like a squat somewhere or something. It was, it was really bad. Yeah. And, um, and I called, I called Tony, Fat Tony, to, he checked my ego. That was another thing. I, my ego was checked. I called him and I said, this is getting bad. And he said, I've been waiting for you to call me with this for the last year because people have been laughing at you rather than with you. And I needed him to say that. I needed somebody wow. to tell me that I was no longer funny. I was what was funny. And um, I had to hear that. To be, to be knocked down, for my ego to be checked that hard. And he said, I want you to come to a meeting with me. And it took me a while before I did, but I did. Um, that happened. Um, my ex died. Um, this sounds a little bit like Katie Price, like my horse was shot in the garden. <laughs> I, my, my kids were kidnapped in South Africa, I realised. It all <clears throat> happened really closely. My ex died and he was the one, he was a dealer and he was the one that I got really, um, that things started to spiral out of right. control around. Yeah. But I loved him. Like, I still always loved him. And I still love him. Of course, him. of course. Um, and when we stopped dating, we still were amazing friends. And he got married and I loved his wife. We were all just really close. He died. And then right towards the end of September, uh, right towards the end of 2019, my best friend of 10 years said I can't do this with you anymore and she stopped speaking to me and we've never really been friends since she said I can't deal with you anymore this is too much because I was enjoying causing drama in people's lives I was enjoying going out and ruining other people's lives other people's nights I was enjoying upsetting people I was in a really really fucked place and I had I had to address it how do you come back from there to where you're at right now? Recovery. Oh my God. Recovery. It, it, I was, I, I hit rock bottom into, at the end of 2019 and I knew I have to get help now because if not, I'm probably just going to die. I had, this is another thing. I had overdosed a few months before I got into recovery. I went to Berlin and I went out for four or five days, didn't eat just partied and I overdosed on the fifth day and that didn't stop me. Nothing was stopping me, my my ex dying he, and he died of drug related things. He, yeah. he, he caused himself to have a brain hemorrhage. Um, that didn't stop me. Overdosing didn't stop me. Um, you know, all, all of the, and when, then when she, my friend, my, my friend, when she told me, I can't, I can't deal with you anymore. That was when I was like, I'm losing everything. I am losing everything. And Alex was around and I knew I was going to lose him too. And so I went to recovery um, and that changed everything. I spent the, and I, <clears throat> I think I spent the next year. Um, I went to meetings constantly, sometimes like five or six times a week. I also signed up with a therapist and I looked inwards and backwards for a year. Solid. Um, and I remained in the, in the meetings for another year after that. And um, I just realized so much had gone wrong. And um, and they, it would have been really easy for me to blame each any any particular event for like being the cause of the fuck it switch. Yeah, I, I could have I could have blamed any of the any any of the the things that had happened in those two years, I could have, I could have blamed, but it, I am an addict. I, it was my, my addict brain just needed a little bit of like a, go on, do it. And I did. And, um, and so, yeah, that was, I, I got sober, um, three, over three and a half years ago. And doing that completely changed my life. I mean, whole com- life. completely changed your life. I've known you, I knew yeah. you before, I knew you. You know, I knew you at the party. I knew you before the party. I know you now. I feel like a different person. You are a different person. Yeah. You're the person you were always supposed to be, I feel. Yeah. But I feel it's bigger than that because I feel you're the person now that was supposed to be there, knowing all these things, going to the lowest place, to be there as a figurehead in the community to help every different situation because in your 
your life you've experienced a lot of those things completely yeah you know we we started having a conversation about like being proud of where we are now and proud of things that we've bought or achieved or what, what we're doing I've experienced the absolute lowest things I can, when I came to to London I borrowed 300 pounds to move to London and that was what I had when I when I got here you know that like fucking nothing I was buying you know I was buying my my meal from my meals from Poundland and and all of that and I, I to go from that to you know being like some swanky nightclub manager to literally being a junkie that ended up in squats to all of these experiences that came before the last three and he, three and a half years and all of the roles all of my jobs and all of that you know they all um, gave me a point of reference and an experience that gave me the skill set to do what I do now. I take think. away, take away the addiction. What's the biggest lesson you learned for all of that to get you to this place where you're at right now? Um, the biggest lesson I learned. Um. I think it's that um, it doesn't really matter. This this might come out wrong. I might need to redo this. But I think it's that um, nobody really gives a shit who you are. Like the, the, the thing that's going to be important, the thing that's going to define your life is like how you create change around you. It's not actually about me. It's about like what happens around me. Um, and that goes back to my ego being checked of like I actually used to think that I was the most important thing in the room and it's not it's not I'm not the most important thing in the room or in the situation or in the movement I I am not that but what I am able to do with it and what I'm able to help other people with through it is way more important that's the lesson that I learned is that nobody gives a shit who I am or or, or, do you know what I mean yeah does that make sense yes like like it doesn't matter how I think the ego is the destruction of progress completely oh my god completely um I'm glad that I'm able to recognize I see through so much bullshit now that I wasn't that I, that I got caught up in years ago do you think that you were you didn't think you were capable of feeling joy as well before or pride I think I've relearned who I am completely in um I I think at one point I probably thought that I was this like ex- crazy extrovert um, living life in the fast lane. And I think the thing that I have learned is... Um, You're a mad cat lady I'm a, I'm, that lives by the seaside. I'm a quiet little cat lady that lives by the seaside <laughs> with my autistic boyfriend <laughs> in a silent house where we don't even play music loud. Like I, my life is peace. It's complete. It's all my my life is centered around peace and quiet, and that is how I experienced joy that I didn't know that I, I I was that I was looking for in a bottle, in a baggie, in a shithole nightclub in East London, in you know whatever it was. That joy that I was looking for then is what I have found in something that is so simple and quiet. Trans people can be quiet. Trans people can find love. Trans people can get married. And getting married. Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? Getting married. I know. Yeah, marrying that bouncer that I saw on the King's Road. I mean, (laughs) I feel that we talk about that a lot, me and you. I'm also getting married. Yeah, we're both getting married. And I didn't envisage this for me either because I didn't think I was worth it and I think that's what it sometimes Mm. boils down to that but we also didn't see people like us getting married that's another big conversation that I'm sure we can have on the next time the next time um is we grew up underneath and in the wake of section 28 and the AIDS epidemic and all of these factors that meant that we didn't see queer people experiencing that type of joy and uh if you can't see it you can't be it we didn't even know that that was an option I didn't I didn't know that was that was an option I still I mean I think now I know maybe a handful a small handful of trans people that are married but I I certainly that's all within the last couple of years before that I didn't know that that was, a, that was something that was available to me. I thought I just had to be with absolute wankers for the rest of my life that I secretly hated. <laughs> you know, like, do you know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. 
We didn't see it. So now we see it. And now we and now we get to be the example that other people see. That's really important. That's and that's also important to me is that where with with the organization that we are a part of and in the work we do is we get to be a really positive example. And you were doing that. You were yeah. creating that. You were giving space for that. Anyone that's listening, how do they in the absolute moment right now support not a phase? If you're in a position in your um, your workplace to grab your DNI manager to reach out to me or reach out to us and either do a big old whacking corporate donation or invite us in to do some talks and change people's minds about things, great. If not, chuck on a, chuck on one of the t-shirts and go and have conversations with your friends. And uh, when I say the t-shirts, I mean one of ours or like one of our hats or whatever it is. Create conversations with the people around you. Direct them to not phase. We've got all of these resources. And we'll put um, all of that as well. Yeah. Just go and get some fucking money. <laughs> that sounds bad. <laughs> it doesn't sound bad. But uh, it's a really The reason I put that time. last is I think a lot of the time when we talk about charity, it's like you do your bit by sending over a tenner once a year. We actually need you more to have conversations and 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 if not a phase is the vessel for that that's way more important to us like yeah um and and the reason my first point is it is it a workplace thing is because that's what i spend so much of my time doing is going in and having conversations with big groups of people that work at companies about like what's actually going on so yeah i think what's the, what's the immediate way to support not phase start having conversations check out our resources that are available to everybody educate yourself yeah check yourself before you wreck yourself home girl that's how we're ending this i think <laughs> danny st james says check yourself before you wreck yourself i'm gonna have you back on again because right now in my life in all of our lives this should be one of the most important conversations we're having i feel um if you see yourself on the right side of history, which is to be empathetic, to be a good person, to look out for those people that need you, then support trans people, support your trans friends, support anyone that you see struggling. Um, follow Danny St. James, follow Not A Phase and um, be the ally that you want to be. I love you. Love you. 